Welcome, everybody. My name is uh, Mike Savage. Excuse the hoarse voice. I'm covering from a, um, a bug. Um, I'm director of the International Inequalities Institute. Uh, I'm also uh, involved in this uh, report, which was released today by the Sutton Trust, who commissioned this, this, this work, which has already attracted a lot of interest on social media, if any of you are following that. So it's really very timely and very exciting to be uh, chairing tonight's session. Um, this is a report which has been produced by four of us working in the International Inequalities Institute. Um, the two main stars of the show are Katharina Hecht, who will be giving the main introduction to the key findings. But I also want to acknowledge Daniel MacArthur, who um, did a lot of the spade work, put it in those terms, which he, we're going to be talked about. Uh, Daniel won't be speaking, but he'll be available to answer questions when we get to that session. Um, just, and then I also to introduce Sam Freeman, who will also be, has also been involved in the report, but he's going to be acting as a discussant tonight. Um, so just to say a few words about Katerina. Katerina used to be a PhD student here in the Department of Sociology and is now a postdoc working at University, University of Pennsylvania in the US. Uh, Dan also was a PhD student in Sociology and is currently a postdoc at Oxford. So, uh, very exciting to welcome them back to the LSE, where they spent many happy years. Um, uh, Sam Freeman, many of you will know Sam. Sam is Associate Professor in Sociology Department at, uh, at LSE, and well known for his work on the class ceiling. Also, uh, we're going to have, at the end, after we've had um, Katarina talking and Sam responding, we're going to have Lee Elliott Major, who many of you will know. Lee Elliott Major used to be Chief Executive of the Sutton Trust. He's now Professor of Practice and Professor of Social Mobility at the University of Exeter. And he has, seen, he has been very involved in reflecting upon research on social mobility, elites and inequality. And he'll be offer some, offer some overall reflections about this project. Uh, but before I uh, introduce um, Catherine to introduce the report, I do want to say quickly, I'm, I'm really thrilled about this research, not just because I've had a very slight hand in, in it, but really it's, it's represents, I think, really important work which has been done by the IAI, because the IAI, as many of you will know, operates as an institute across the LSE, bringing different departments together. And I think on this occasion, uh, this, this project fits squarely into a theme of research which I am leading around questions of wealth, elites and tax justice. And that is a theme which is bringing together people from many parts of the LSE, from economics, social policy, uh, law, anthropology, political science. And I think it showcases what we're trying to do here, which is to bring together really important interdisciplinary work. Um, but also, uh, I have this double, double hat, you know, IAI director, also professor of sociology. I also want to say this report's really, really important because we're thinking as sociologists how we can extend some of the arguments put forward by economists around what's happening at the top end of the, the social structure, if you like. So, as Katerina will, will talk about, we know a lot about the top income shares in the UK as in many other countries. What is less well known is the, is the wider social and cultural and political issues around what's going on there. So, I, I, speaking as a sociologist, really, really pleased that um, this work is contributing to the, the work of the IAI. So, um, it'll be a great evening. Uh, Katerina will be speaking for about 20, 25 minutes or so, introducing the key themes of the report. The report is, if you, then, you, can, you can download it if you want to see it from the Sutton Trust. 
it's, it's a long report, it's a lot there. We're not going to try and summarise every aspect of it. We're going to try and, or she's going to try and give you some highlights. Um, and then Sam will respond to some of the issues which, which are posed. And then we move on to Lee. And, and we should have about half an hour of Q&A uh, before we finish. Okay, so let's welcome Katerina to the stage. Um, thank you, Mike, for this kind introduction. Um, before I start, I just want to say briefly um, that I've flown in on a red eye this morning and I got a, about a couple of hours of sleep. So apologies, <laughs> apologies if my, anything in my um, presentation today is a bit delayed. Um, also, before I talk to you about the findings, I just want to say many, many thanks to the Sutton Trust for funding the report, um, and in particular to Carl Kalinane um, for detailed feedback. Many thanks in particular to Carl Kalinane for um, excellent feedback and suggestions on the report. I'd also like to uh, thank the Celsius team um, at the ONS for um, detailed guidance, and in particular, I want to thank Ali Zeiser. Last but not least, I'd like to say thanks to the research directors, Professor Mike Savage and Dr. Sam Friedman, for the guidance and also the inspiration for this report. Uh, and special thanks um, to Dr. Dan MacArthur uh, for wonderful um, research work um, on the ONS LS. Now, as Mike has already introduced, uh, we're going to be talking about whether elites are pulling away, not just economically, as we know from previous work by economists, but also socially and geographically. Now, just in terms of context, and uh, you all have seen um, similar charts, um, this chart depicts the top 1% of income shares um, in Anglophone countries, and it shows that it ha they have starkly increased since the 1980s. Um, so in particular in the UK, they have about doubled between 1980 um, and 2015. Uh, now while top wealth shares um, haven't increased as strongly in the UK, wealth, as you can see, is much more strongly concentrated in income and is therefore uh, very important um, for thinking about elites pulling away at the top. Now, having demonstrated brief, briefly that um, economics elites are pulling away, um, I'd like to introduce the idea that um, elites might be pulling away socially as well in terms of their attitudes and cultural distinctiveness, um, but also geographically, and in particular, um, the relationship between um, social and geographical mobility. And here I want to say that the study of social mobility uh, is central to allowing us to assess how far elites are pulling away. Insofar as access to elite, posi to elite positions um, is possible uh, for a people of wide range of backgrounds, then we can say that um, elites aren't pulling away. Um, and therefore, we've analyzed geographic moves and also social mobility into elite occupations using the ONS longitudinal study. Now, who are the elites? Um, this is a contested term in the literature um, among social scientists, and it's also debated in the public. Um, so as I've already mentioned, the top 1% um, is a very important measure for economists, um, and they could be seen as economic elites. Um, we could also just term these the rich. 
Um, the rich can be defined relationally. So for example, the rich is 1%, 0.1% or 0.01% of the population, but also in absolute terms, for example, billionaires, billionaires, or people with a certain amount of investable assets. And here there is some overlap, but also uh, discrepancy be between a definition of elites as um, those who have institutional power. Um, and this is, for example, um, has been proposed by Professor Elisa Rice and Mick Moore um, as being an important way of defining elites. Um, we could also think of uh, an elite social class, uh, which is what Mike Savage and colleagues um, have suggested based on the analysis of the BBC Great British Class Survey. Uh, now finally, and here we uh, return to our sociological theme, uh, we could also see occupational um, elites as part of elites. And here specifically, um, I mean people who have um, a social class position that puts them at the top of the social class hierarchy, meaning they're class one of the national statistics socio-economic classification. Uh, now, just to give you an example um, of what we mean by when we say occupational elites, acknowledging that this is contested, um, people um, with professional and managerial occupations are, for example, CEOs, professors, uh, engineers, stockbrokers, doctors, and so forth. Um, we also have um, intermediate um, occupations in the middle, as you can see in yellow there, and people from uh, working class occupations who do semi-routine occupations or routine occupations. So this is the main framework that, that we're going to be working with um, today. Now, what do we know about elite, elites pulling away socially and um, culturally? In our previous work on the Great British Class Survey and also my PhD research, which looked at top 1% of income earners in the UK and how they see um, their advantage and top income shares have shown that they, economic elites are aware of their increasing advantage, though they're unlikely to see themselves as upper middle class um, rather than as upper class. They're also likely to justify their position um, through beliefs in meritocracy. However, the, the population in general is likely to, to do so, so therefore we cannot say that elites hold distinctive uh, perspectives. Um, we also found, using the Great British Class Survey data, um, that at least do not have distinctive cultural or lifestyle practices. Um, for example, even though those with highest household income are more likely to engage in so-called highbrow activities, such as going to classical music concerts or going to the opera, it's still only a minority of people with highest household income, so 200,000 and above, um, after taxes, um, who engage in those activities. So we cannot say that elites are distinctive from everyone else in terms of their cultural practices. Um, now, research by um, Sam Friedman and Aaron Reeves over the very long run has shown that the impact of private schooling in access to elite universities and firms is very important and remains highly important now in their analysis of who's who, um, the prestigious list of people in the UK. Um, their power has slightly waned over the long run. Now, moving on to the heart of our analysis, which is an analysis of the uh, data by the Office for National Statistics Longitudinal Study. And for this, we've looked specifically um, at social mobility into elite occupations, so into the highest social class of the UK. 
Um, we also looked at whether geographic mobility makes a difference and the, specific, um, the specifics of London. Now, um, in terms of methodology, um, I want to highlight why we used um, the ONS data. Um, it's a 1% sample of linked census records of the population of England, England and Wales, and it links the records uh, from each of the uh, censuses between 1971 and 2011. So its advantages are that it's a very longitudinal data set. It's largely representative of the population. Um, and also it has a very good measure of um, occupation and social class backgrounds. Specifically, we have the measure of occupation um, by the parent and do not have to rely on what people tell us their parents do because we can actually um, derive it from census data. So it's an excellent um, source for us um, to use. Um, now, one, one more slide on the methodology um, that I need to highlight is the different cohorts that we have used. Um, and this is very important for our findings. So, um, here we follow the approach of Franz Buscher and Patrick Sturgis. And we observe children at ages 10 to 16 while they're living with their parents. So these individuals are then followed up 10 years later when they're 20 to 26 years old, and again when they're 30 to 36. And it is at this age that their occupation and status can be said to have been established. And then we can measure their adult social class. So there are three cohorts in the LS data whom we can follow and whose social mobility trajectory we can compare as you can see from the table. So to give concrete examples to make it easier, the 1955 to 61 cohort are first observed when they were children, children in 1971, aged 10 to 16, at which time parental social class was measured. So these individuals' own social class was then measured in 1991, when they were aged 30 to 36, as I mentioned. Now, unfortunately, there isn't a distance of move variable available for this cohort. Um, and therefore, um, we do not know whether they moved when they were young. However, this cohort offers data on social mobility and therefore we include it in our analysis for that. <laughs> now, as I mentioned, uh, we look into social mobility into this highest uh, socioeconomic class, um, which are comprises of higher professional occupations and higher managerial occupations. Um, so in terms of higher professional occupations, a few examples are solicitors, doctors, and accountants. And in terms of um, higher managerial professions, examples will be CEOs and financial managers of large, larger financial um, corporations or corporations in general. So two things I want to highlight with those charts here um, are firstly, that these individuals are overrepresented in London, um, and then that they make up only a small minority of the population, so approximately 10%. Um, as I mentioned before, um, we call these elite occupations um, in our report, um, and I think it could be justified given that they're a small proportion um, of the population. Now, we look at someone's social mobility trajectory um, by 
um, seeing how high up people moved or whether they were stable. So, for example, intergenerational stability means uh, that the person has higher so social class, um, plus the parents already had higher social class themselves, were higher managers and professionals. For example, the parents were um, academics, um, doctors, or lawyers. Um, Short-range mobilities is when parents um, had um, NSEC2 occupations, i.e. they were lower managers and professionals, including teachers and nurse, nurses and such like. And then we have mid-range mobility um, and long-range mobility. Um, people are seen as mid-range mobile if they themselves have um, higher managerial and professional occupations, but their parents, for example, were plumbers, carpenters, and secretaries. And then finally, long-range mobility um, are people who, for example, had parents who were cleaners, truck drivers, or bus drivers, and they themselves um, managed to um, be social mobility success stories and um, have higher, higher um, managerial and professional occupations themselves. So, um, to jump into our very first finding, um, social mobility into elite occupations. The main takeaway from the finding um, is, as you can see, generally, um, absolute social mobility into elite occupations has been stable over time. So absolute mobility was broadly stable across the cohorts, but there was a small trend towards upward social mobility being lower among the younger cohorts. So specifically for the youngest male cohort, those born in 1975 to 1981, the probability of someone with a higher professional or managerial occupation to have been long-range mobile was significantly lower than it was for the older cohorts who were born between 1955 and 1961 and 1965 and 1971. So the, the probability of someone in higher social class to have been long-range mobile um, decreases from around um, 19 or 18% to 12%. And further, um, a higher proportion of men in higher managerial and professional occupations uh, were intergenerationally stable in the two young cohorts than in the oldest cohorts. Um, and you can see this when you compare the three bars at the top left-hand side of the screen. Now for women, the overall story is the same. Um, though these findings are not statistically um, significant, the differences across the cohorts. Now, having talked about mobility into um, highest, uh, in, into higher managerial and professional occupations, um, I'd like to add a further. Um, um, further variable into the mix, um, which is geographical mobility. And often, in analyses of social mobility, space and geographical mobility um, is not considered. But as we show, it's um, important to consider, and I think this is where we make a fresh contribution with this report. Now, there is an established mantra about social mobility and geographic mobility. Uh, which most notoriously has been expressed 
by Norman, Norman Tebbit's On Your Bike comments in the 1980s, suggesting that workers in depressed areas of the UK should move elsewhere to find work, and that those who are prepared to move, for example, to areas where more jobs are available, will reap the highest rewards in the end. Now, analyzing ONS data, we can show that the reality is much more complicated than that. And specifically, I'd like to point your attention to the fact that we're stretching this metaphor by looking not just at bike rides, but at um, car rides um, and long-distance moving. And specifically, we look at moves larger or further away than 28 kilometers. And that's moves that are in the top quarter uh, in terms of distance. So looking at number of moves in the top quartile of distance moves us to a finding too, um, the interrelationship between social mobility and geographic mobility. Now, what we can see is that the majority of upwardly mobile people have not been geographically mobile. So if you point your attention towards the lightest gray bars, uh, which is the so-called social mobility success stories, who have been long-range upwardly mobile from working-class occupations to high managerial and professional occupations, you can see that a vast majority of them have actually um, never moved. So they, they can be seen as residentially immobile. And that this is in stark contrast to those people who have been stable or only short-range mobile, whereby a majority of those people has engaged in long-distance moves. Now, what does this tell us about the relationship between social and geographic mobility? Now, this suggests that upward mobility is possible in situ, and that the cosmopolitan experience of needing to move to advance one's career is not typical of those who achieve long-range social mobility into elite occupations. Now, this finding, however, can be read in a few dif different ways, because despite this finding, geographic immobility may have bearings for the quality of one's career prospects. And whether one is able to take up the most sought-after opportunities in higher managerial and professional occupations, particularly compared to those people who are moving to London. So overall, the key takeaway point from this slide is that a majority of those people who are long-range socially mobile um, have never moved long distance. They were able to achieve their mobility uh, where they grew up. Now, a third of our findings looks at um, the affluence of the area that people live. And the key finding from this slide is that people who are upwardly mobile into elite occupations end up in areas that are more affluent than where they started out in when they were aged 10 to 16. However, they are not able to close the gap with their peers whose parents already held professional and managerial occupations. So therefore, we term this an area ceiling. Um, even though they improve their um, the affluence or the, the neighborhood that they move in, they do not catch up. Now, as, I already alluded, as I've already alluded to, um, London is key 
um, for analysis here. And this is because in previous research, London has been shown to be the elite epicenter of this country. Um, people with highest um, incomes are based in London. Now, a fourth and final finding takes into account the role of London. So we're looking at people's social mobility trajectory into higher managerial professional occupations um, and, their, and their mobility trajectory, um, including whether they've lived in London. So we have um, four trajectories. They lived in London. They've never lived in London. They lived at London. They lived in London at age 10 to 16, so only when they were children. They lived in London at age 30 to 36, which is a key variable because it indicates that they moved to London for their adulthood to pursue their careers. Um, and they've lived uh, in London both as children and as adults. So this graph um, is complicated, but I'll talk you through it. And it's important because it highlights the crux of our argument. Um, so this shows that uh, 75 of people who were, um, were able to make the move from outside London into London, meaning that they moved to London to pursue their, their adult careers, and therefore able to take up the opportunities that are most um, prestigious and sought after. Um, 75 of them have been um, from privileged backgrounds themselves. So um, of all people with elite occupations who were born in 1975 and 81, so the youngest cohort um, on the right-hand side, um, who were not living in London when they were children at age 10 to 16, but did so at the age 30 to 36, only a tiny proportion of those, so 5 percent <laughs> <laughs> have been uh, long-range socially mobile from working class backgrounds whereas over a third are stable, and the staggering three quarters are either stable or stable or short-range mobile. So in conclusion, our analysis of uh, the ONS longitudinal study has investigated the relationship between geographic mobility and social mobility into elite occupations. We've also considered the role of London because it's seen as elite epicenter. What we've shown is that long distance moves um, and um, mobility into highest uh, social class occupations does not require moving geographically. So actually a majority of those people um, who were socially mobile are still living where they did when they grew up. In comparison, those brought up in privileged social classes are like, much more likely to have moved long distance, because a majority of those who are intergenerationally stable have moved long distance in order to pursue their careers. And we've also shown that even if the upwardly mobile move long distance, then they end up in areas which are not as affluent as those who are intergenerationally stable. So there is a, 
an area ceiling analogous to the class ceiling um, based on our findings. Now, in terms of the role of London, uh, London is a crucial area arena for elites and has strengthened its position as an elite epicenter. However, what analysis shows is that the Dick Whittington conception of moving to the capital to move up in the world does not re reflect the reality. So for the younger generation, moving to and living in London at age 30 to 36, meaning they're moving there for their careers and working in an elite occupation, is overwhelmingly associated with being from privileged background in the first place. And this holds even more true for the younger generation than it did for the older generation. So our analysis therefore makes it clear that those from privileged, that it is those from privileged backgrounds that are more able to migrate to and remain in London and can therefore take advantages of the most sought after and highly financially rewarded career opportunities in Britain's elite occupations. Therefore, what we show is that there is an association between geographic, geographic mobility and the reproduction of social class advantage rather than between social mobility. Thank you. Thanks very much, Katerina. And uh, you know, a brilliant uh, overview of four, four key points. And we'll lead on to Sam, who's going to reflect and uh, discuss some of the issues. That, and uh, uh, Sam. Okay, so I just want to start by uh, acknowledging the hard work of Katerina and Dan in particular, who are really responsible for this uh, smashing report. But what I'm going to do um, just in the next 10 minutes or so is, is, I suppose, take two themes from the report uh, and try and kind of place these in a slightly wider context, um, drawing on some other work that I've been involved with. So first, I think <clears throat> perhaps the most striking thing about this study uh, as Katerina mentioned, is the link it provides between patterns of geographical and social mobility in the UK. Uh, but the key finding, I suppose, which you may have already detected, uh, can arguably be read, be read in different ways, right? Uh, is the main takeaway message here uh, that upward mobility uh, is not contingent on moving away from one's local community, or does it point more to uh, the fact that the upwardly mobile are unable to make the move, especially to London, that would give them access to the very best professional career opportunities. Um, and interestingly, you even see this playing out, uh, this tension playing out in how the press have read the report today. Um, so the Independent, for example, ran with the headline, moving to London not necessary to climb the social ladder, while the BBC went with uh, elites making London off limits. So you can see that there is clearly uh, two interesting, potentially um, confusing storylines here. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things I want to kind of touch on is that clearly this is something to do with the quantitative data that we're drawing on here that can't kind of definitively adjudicate between these two stories. It can't tell us in particular anything about people's motivations or their decision-making processes uh, um, that take place. So I thought in this way it might be useful to relate the findings here to some recent qualitative work that I've done um, as part of my book with Daniel Lawrence in the class ceiling, which involved um, 175 interviews uh, with those from different backgrounds and from different parts of the country in exactly these types of occupations, in NSEC1 occupations, specifically at an elite accountancy firm, 
uh, one of Britain's biggest television broadcaster uh, and uh, architecture practice and also um, with some self-employed actors. And what I would say is, although these interviews to some extent also support these findings, each side of those findings, if you will, I think it's the latter of the two that came out much more strongly uh, in, uh, in our data. So while certainly I spoke to many upwardly mobile individuals who had very important reasons for wanting to, to work close to home, to forge their careers close to home, maintaining relationships with family, uh, with friends and community, I would say that most were acutely aware of the fact that the best opportunities in their industry uh, um, um, are still clustered in the capital, still clustered in London, um, and had chosen to work in regional offices, for example, uh, or undertake very long commutes um, for largely pragmatic economic reasons. Okay? The thought of making a life in London, particularly in terms of housing costs, was often kind of narrated as something that just fell out of one's reach and motivated then decisions to take up opportunities, for example, at the accountancy firm that I looked at, um, at regional offices rather than uh, seeking out um, the more lucrative um, opportunities in London. Um, and I think what was interesting was that when you contrasted that with uh, the career narratives of those from privileged backgrounds, um, there was often a, an important uh, theme there, what we call in the book the bank of mum and dad, of a kind of tangible financial cushion or the theoretical possibility of it being there if necessary, um, which often underpinned the early career decisions uh, that these individuals undertook, particularly in relation to moving to London uh, to forge a career. And in the book, we actually go far further than this um, to argue that this kind of financial cushion not only flanks decisions to move to London uh, in order to kind of access the kind of high-status employment that we're talking about tonight, but it also has wider implications for career progression, okay, for who gets to the very top of our uh, elite professions. Uh, in particular, that this bank of mum and dad, in a way, provides a form of insulation from a lot of the uncertainties associated with forging a career, both in terms of negotiating uh, cost of living, but also more psychologically in terms of engendering a sense that you can take more risks in your career. Okay, spend more time on networking, uh, take more uncertain or short-term roles, all of which things that may have really important long-term benefits uh, for your career. So I think in this way, I would see or read the results in today's report as not only telling us something about who can and can't move to London, but in so doing also revealing something about uh, who is able to be really long-range, upwardly social, socially mobile, okay? who is really able to get ahead uh, uh, and why we have such a profound class ceiling in the UK. Um, the second point I want to touch on is um, something that uh, um, Katerina uh, mentioned at the beginning, which is um, the cultural distinctiveness of uh, contemporary elites and, um, and the theme of whether uh, elites are in some ways pulling away culturally. And this is something that I'm really fascinated by. Um, and, and the report re rightly points out that a lot of recent research kind of does indicate that the lifestyles of elites now has much in common with uh, wider groups. But I want to just explore this a bit further, um, as I think there's a little more to say on this. And to do this, I'm going to draw on um, some other work I've been conducting with Aaron Reeves, um, where we've been able to access the entire historical database of who's who. Okay? 
this is the kind of big red book uh, that some of you may have, uh, know about that's long kind of acted as the more the kind of most authoritative catalogue of, of the British elite and has been, has been published every year for the last 120 uh, in the UK. And one of the unique things about who's who is the entrants who, who make up um, really kind of the leaders uh, across a number of occupational fields. So they're much more elite slice, if you will, of, uh, of occupational elites, representing roughly the top 0.05% of the UK population. They don't just list biographical data in who's who, but also curiously express their recreations. Um, and in this way, we've been able to use this data to reveal kind of three distinct stages of elite culture in Britain over the last 120 years. First, a, a, a dominant mode of kind of aristocratic practice that was forged around the leisure possibilities afforded by landed estates, but which waned significantly at the beginning of the 20th century. Second, a kind of highbrow uh, um, mode dominated by kind of the fine arts, which increased sharply in the early 20th century before interestingly gently receding in the most recent birth cohorts. And thirdly, a really intriguing contemporary trend um, characterised by the blending of highbrow cultural pursuits with much more everyday forms of cultural participation. So people asserting that they um, uh, spend time with family, uh, spend time with friends, that they uh, put their pets in as part of their recreational um, uh, repertoires. And it's really this blending that I want to focus on here so we interpret this contemporary mode as kind of representative of a, of a kind of complex dance that today's elites must undertake when asserting their cultural identity, particularly in public documents like Who's Who. So uh, let me just give you an example. So you might remember that in June of last year, as he vied for the Tory leadership, Boris Johnson was asked by an interviewer about his recreations. Uh, the answer might have been Greek literature, it might have been classical Latin, opera, fine art, all things we know that uh, Boris Johnson enjoys based on the countless uh, accounts of his friends and biographers. But curiously, uh, he elided any of these highbrow passions and told the interviewer that his real passion was making model buses out of cardboard. So this, uh, I, I suppose we are calling uh, the pursuit of ordinary elite distinction. First, the careful selection in who's who of some legitimate culture, be that highbrow or also acclaimed forms of popular culture, but alongside this and very prominently expressed, more everyday cultural practices. Okay, this, this kind of notion of, of, of spending time with family, friends, etc., that I think is largely unrelated to kind of hierarchies of cultural legitimacy. And, and our argument, I suppose, is that this expression of ordinariness performs an important signaling function for contemporary elites. Um, lots of studies demonstrate, for example, that non-elites, and particularly uh, um, people in working class positions, often distinguish between elites that they see as kind of decent, upstanding, and elites that they see as snobbish, with clearly uh, the, uh, the former valued over the latter. So it's not so much that elites are viewed with suspicion because they are elite, rather it's some perceived smugness or elitism that rouses negative reactions. So I think in this way it's possible to see the kind of public expression of everyday culture as a means of kind of accentuating cultural connection and normality. I think Boris and his buses again, while carefully retaining actually 
many of the cultural differences traditionally tied to uh, elite distinction. One final point, just to connect this to uh, tonight's theme about elites pulling away, what's interesting in our analysis is that we see this kind of rise of ordinary elite distinction um, as being most clear-cut from the 1990s onwards, okay? precisely when, as Katerina was telling you, uh, the top 1% of the income distribution in this country uh, begins to pull away. Of course, this is only an association, but I suppose our tentative or provocative interpretation would be that as elites have pulled away economically, um, they've perhaps become increasingly secure, insecure about their moral legitimacy and increasingly sensitive to public concern. And so in this context, the connotations of ordinariness that accompany certain everyday cultural practices may act as a very effective means of shoring up legitimacy, signaling authenticity in an era of rising inequality. Thanks, thanks, Sam. And now on to Lee Elliott Major. <clears throat> Thank you, Mike. Um, so I just want to offer some reactions and some provocations uh, to hopefully stimulate some debate uh, on, on this wonderful uh, report. I have to say, Mike, I, I think I'm the only professor of social mobility in the world, and I always say to, to, to my family that I'm the leading professor. But my, but my, <laughs> my daughter always reminds me that I'm the only one. But anyway, um, so um, yeah, the first thing I, I want to do is just welcome this report, and that's not just because I was involved in the commissioning of it originally, um, but this is quite symbolic, and, and Carl, if he's, is here, will know this as well, because the, the Sutton Trust, as, as a very influential foundation, has always pursued social mobility, but really through education. So, so um, you know, this is, this is quite a momentous report, actually, for the Sutton Trust in terms of recognising that inequality is part of, 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 the, of the equation. And, you know, the elites were studied a lot, uh, it was a bit before my time in the 60s and 70s, so I, I really, I think it's great that we have a bunch of young uh, researchers looking into elites again. I think it's a field that, that hasn't had as much focus as it, as it could have uh, in recent uh, years. And I, and I think it's no coincidence, actually, that there are these concerns about uh, the elites in, in ways, I think, that, that perhaps weren't there, uh, say, 20 years, years ago. Um, so so I, I really welcome the fact that we're talking about inequality and, and, and elites um, in terms of, of social mobility. Saying that... Um, I think one of the things that I worry about in these debates is that we have a false dichotomy between social justice and social mobility, and there's been a lot of pushback, and I suspect there'll be some comments uh, this evening on, on, isn't it all about inequality? And I'm totally sympathetic with arguments that inequality is absolutely crucial to these debates. Um, I was going to say, that as the historian H.R. Tawney said, we need a both open road and an equal start. But when we're talking about elites, I think it's also important to think about social mobility. And this report obviously does that, because if we don't diversify those elites, if we don't have social mobility to, into those top echelons, then I don't think we can have these wider debates about inequality. So in, in a way, for me, it's a means to an end. And I think it's really important that we have diverse elites. It's important that, that, that their decision-making reflects society uh, as a whole. So happy to discuss more on that, but I, th I think these two things are two sides of the same coin, of the, of the same coin in many respects. Uh, and I worry about this sort of 
uh, false dichotomy in, in the debate. It's really interesting that Labour, the Labour Party, talked about social justice instead of social mobility and to some extent lost some of the votes. Okay, we might get into this a bit. Uh, uh, up north, because I think it, it, it sort of gave a message that, that there wasn't aspirational uh, uh, sort of uh, side to that as well. So it's a bit like, I, always, I think social mobility, I compare it to Heineken. For those of you who can remember Heineken commercials, it sort of reaches beers that others can't reach. Well, it's the policy that other policies can't reach. It, it gets you into the, into the elites. So the other thing uh, about this report that I think is really uh, good is that it starts to look at place and time um, in terms of social mobility. So, so we've, we've had lots of uh, studies over the, over the years, and I've summarised them in, in the book Social Mobility and its, en- and its Enemies, published by Penguin, available in all good bookshops still. Uh, but a lot of those studies are about national uh, averages of, of income or social mobility, uh, comparing different countries. And I think we're going into a new era now where we're starting to look at regional variation, place-based variation. I think that's very exciting for people like me because it kind of starts to get you into debates about why is it certain places are uh, mobile and everywhere. So it starts to get you more into that sort of causal, potential causal uh, mechanism. So I think that's great that we're talking about uh, place particularly. Of course, this country, we are dominated by one place where we are right now, which is London. And I'll come on to a bit about about London uh, in a bit. The other thing about elites, other research uh, has suggested that they have persistence over many generations, not one. So a lot of the studies in social mobility just look at the the link between one generation and another. How alike are you compared with your parents and various characteristics? I think what's What's sort of alarming about the elites is, if you look at, look at some of the studies, suggests that it's not just one generation, it's multiple uh, generations. And this is, again, a sort of an emerging uh, field of, of social mobility, which this uh, report speaks to. I think one of the challenges I'd have to the researchers, and they've already preempted this with the two very good presentations, is we have to be careful how we define our elites. And I think that was part of the thing that Sam was talking about. That the sort of, as a journalist, I think I would have been slightly confused as well. So, you know, are we talking about that one percent, or are we talking about uh, even the, the really small elites in the country? Are we, to, are we talking about that ten percent of the professional uh, classes that Katerina talked about, which is a much bigger uh, proportion of, of the population? So, I think when we talk about uh, this stuff. Define your elites, I, I would I think. I think the researchers have done that. So finally, just coming on to stuff about what do we do about this, and I hope we can, we can, we can discuss the, this, because I think that's, that, that's where we want to take this debate to tonight. Lots of things we could talk about. I, I think we do want to think about how we improve access into the workplace. Uh, you know, we, we, we tend to look a lot at education, which I think is absolutely fine, but I don't think we do enough... Uh, and Sam has spoken a bit about this, but you know, how do we enable uh, companies, employers to widen access in terms of, of, of their recruitment? And of course, what happens in terms of progression in, in the workplace? I think we're only uh, very early on in, 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 those, in those sort of research. Uh, I mean, I would, I would suggest that we think we need to think more radically about maybe having randomization, for example, over a certain threshold, because at, at the moment it feels uh, extremely rigged uh, to, to against those that, that aren't in, 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 in privileged uh, classes. 
I think for London specifically, we do need to think about uh, policies. Uh, in other parts of the world, we have things like rent caps, you know, cap to, capping rent, the excessive rent that we, we see in London. Um, I think we need to think really innovatively about how we enable talent to come to this city. Because if we don't, I think, you know, we, 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 you know London maybe will suffer. Saying that, uh, it's interesting when I speak about social mobility outside of London, a lot of people are saying to me, uh, Lee, I don't want to move to London. Not that I'm saying that you should move to London. But a lot of people are saying, look, you know, this idea of social mobility, this geographical notion of social mobility, actually, that you have to move like Dick Whittington to London, I think is being rejected uh, across the country, and I can understand why. So I think part of the response to that is how do we enable uh, opportunities to be uh, diversified around the country? Uh, there was even talk about think, the House of Lords going to York. I don't know how serious that is. Um, but, you know, I, I do think we need to think really seriously about uh, how we, we uh, spread opportunity across uh, the country. The, the, the issue we have at the moment is, and again the report talks about, is a, a sort of we're entering into a sort of, I don't want to depress you all here, a sort of dark age of declining absolute mobility, which I think the report sort of alludes to. That means that there are fewer opportunities uh, than there were before, particularly for the younger generations. So finally, I, I just, I just, it's a call for action, really, because I think yeah, the report asked the question, are elites pulling uh, away? I think they are. They have. They've gone. Uh, the question for me is how we respond to that. And I think if we don't respond, I actually do think, I agree with Michael Young on this, who predicted I think there would be an uprising, I think in 2034 in his book, uh, Rise With. Um, you know, and you've seen the debates with, with the environment and, and the, and the extinction, uh, extinction Rebellion. You know, will we have an immobility um, rebellion uh, before? If we don't act, I think others will. So thank you very much. OK, thank you, Lee. So um, I think a really clear presentation and two very interesting comments. So I'm going to throw it over to the floor now. What I suggest we do is we gather up questions in groups of three or so, uh, and then we, we, just, we think about who, who wants to respond. So who would like to um, kick off the questions? Yeah. I think you've done Can you say who you are? And is there a microphone in the room somewhere? Yes, it's back. Yeah. Um, thank you very much, first of all. Um, my name is Joshua. I'm a student at Imperial College London. Um, I was really interested when you started talking about the sort of mimicking of ordinary cultural pursuits um, of the elites now. And Katrina also showed a sort of a tightening of that elite versus non-elite gap in the post-war years. I'm wondering, could the reasons or the mechanisms for that tightening explain some of the reasons for um, the elites now adopting ordinary cultural practices? Okay, any, any more? Um, yeah. Any female... Hi. Um, yeah, thank you for the interesting presentation. Um, I really appreciated the bold association of occupations um, with the broader elite culture. And when you delve into looking at occupations in terms of, you know, apprenticeship opportunities or work, work opportunities and where there are social mobility, opportun uh, social mobility chances there, I wonder whether focusing on the technical aspects of an occupation um, compared to the, let's say, softer skills element, um, whether there is any interest moving forward in what you do with these findings. Can we delve into 
the um, social mobility chances by, for example, becoming a risk taker. Um, because you, you mentioned about the, sorry to be long on this, but you mentioned about the financial cushion that um, those who are born into elite families have. And then that risk-taking aspect that they gain from that by, for example, moving to a new location, uh, being able to take on career opportunities that those who are not born into those circumstances cannot. So I'm just interested if you see any association between risk-taking behavior and then social mobility. Thank you. I'm on more yet in the back there. Even though over the last 30 years there's been a tremendous increase in the number of further education institutions which call themselves universities, it seems to me that only a small number seem to produce globally acceptable results. What are the new elite universities in the UK and will they, will they increasingly have to charge higher fees in order to compete with American elite universities? Okay. So that's a bit of a stretch, but anyway. <laughs> uh, OK, um, so should we go around the panel? Who would like some, some of those just to you, I think? Yeah. Um, yeah, thank you. Um, I'm slightly struggling with the first one in terms of um, exactly what you were referring to in relation to the, the, what you mentioned as tightening. Um, so just to repeat, I was alluding to the graph that Katrina showed quite early in her presentation um, that showed a sort of decline of the income share of the top 1% in the post-war years before it started picking up again after the 90s. So I'm wondering if um, the, can some of the reasons for that tightening explain why now, as the elites are pulling away again, they've sort of adopted more normal or more acceptable cultural practices? Ah, right, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that's the sort of... And I mean, it's a provocative argument because, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a huge argument to make, but I suppose it's the sort of point we're trying to make is that, uh, you, know, it's a, you know, to some extent you're trying to um, accentuate connection when in pure material terms, you know, the connection is becoming increasingly, um, you know, um, stretched. So, you know, you can, in that way, you kind of see it as a, as a strategy, of, in a way, um, of trying to um, sort of, yeah, maintain a sense of, of, of legitimacy in the eyes of, of the population you're living with, within if you are in an elite position. Um, but, you know, I, it's, as I said, it's a, it's a sort of provocative argument, and uh, I'm sort of interested in people's responses to it. But, yeah, that's, that's the sort of gist of it, yeah. Um, the second one was about this uh, about risk taking um, behaviour. Yeah, so for me, I think in terms of doing these really quite in depth interviews with people about their career strategies and how things had worked out for them, I mean, you know, I think often we sort of we think of risk taking as a kind of individualised personality trait, your inclination for for something like that. And I think what I was seeing is that it's it's something that's very kind of um, underpinned um, by, you know, structural elements of, 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 of your kind of conditions of existence, if you will, i.e. when you feel that you can take a risk, but the consequences of that risk failing um, are, um, are sort of undermined by the fact that you have this financial security, then of course that's going to increase your proclivity to to take those risks and um, and you saw that um, a lot in interviews 
Um, whereas, you know, much more sort of um, conservative strategies on the part of those from working class backgrounds who often would kind of self-select but grudgingly into kind of sectors or, or sections of occupations um, that were more economically secure um, and therefore had more financial stability but had less uh, career progression possibilities attached to it. So I, I see that link very clearly. And it's interesting you mentioned one other thing that I actually is really key to the arguments we make in the, in the class ceiling about um, kind of different forms of work um, and I think there's definitely what we were seeing is that you know there are much higher rates of upward mobility into professions where to some extent the rules of the game or the uh, knowledge that's necessary to get from A to B to C is more transparent and that's often in more technical occupations so uh, engineering for example was really clear in our data as a more both a more open uh, profession this is class origin and uh, should make very clearly that I'm not you know, there are huge inequalities in relation to gender uh, in, in engineering. But, but in terms of class origin, um, both more open but also uh, better progression, uh, more equal progression rates um, by class origin as well. So I think that's a key theme, yeah. I, mean, I just add quickly, so, you know, I think transitions in life are critical both for, for the, the elites, but also those uh, people from less privileged backgrounds. And a lot of trust work, for example, is around you know, a transition between school and university. And, and that's where I think some of the evidence would, would suggest that they are most, you know, people are most vulnerable at times of transition. So that kind of resonates uh, certainly with, with me. On the university question, I mean, I, I, I push back on that because I actually think you know, it's good that we have a diversity of higher education institutions actually that are good at different things. I think one of the problems this country and the US has is that we, we have this hierarchy that, you know, that everyone has to be like, you know, Oxbridge and LSE or whatever. Um, I don't think that's healthy actually and I think um, many further education colleges, if funded properly, could do a really good job actually for social mobility in terms of improving life chances. So, you know, I, you know, I, for me, it's about diversity in higher education. But uh, if I can just <coughs> abuse my position from the chair, just respond also to this issue of education, because I think, and here I think the issue about um, economics and, and sociology is quite interesting one, because I think uh, there's a tendency within economics to see education investment as investment in human capital and a kind of good thing. So the more education they get, the more educational investment there is, the better. I think sociologists are more likely to have to see it in a more negative way, a way that education is also about reproducing inequality. And there's an interesting issue, which I think is that if you look at many of the most unequal countries in the world, and the US and the UK would be examples of that, they are countries which actually encourage a lot of mobility between parental home and going to university. So you know, many continental European countries, which are less unequal than say, the UK, you tend to go to your local university. You know, and and it's interesting that we have this, as in the US too, where there's a culture where you, you go to the top-ranked university if you can, that actually um, that detachment of individuals from their kind of um, their, their place of origin, their place of their family, can, can also in a sense be a, a mechanism which allows geographical mobility and social mobility to go hand in hand. So I think there are interesting issues about universities. Okay, it's me done. Um, <laughs> yes, in the front here. <coughs> 
Uh, thank you very much. Uh, Donna Carmichael, PhD student here at the LSE. So my question is um, about the whole notion of social mobility and that as a policy or a social goal or even an individual personal goal and the kind of the pejorative aspect of that, that if you, if you don't achieve long-range social mobility, somehow you're a failure or there's a deficit of ambition or capability and they're you know, likely at a deficit of education. And is that really, uh, you know, is there, is there anything to that that would cause us to rethink the idea of mobility as uh, kind of the ultimate, you know, measure of success in our society? Okay, and then back there. Thank you very much for that. Jessica Arnold, I'm here as a member of the public, uh, probably mid to long range socially mobile member of the public who moved to London 10 years ago from Blackpool. Um, so really fascinated by your findings. Um, the population that you studied um, was the cohort up, born up to 1981, so 39 now. I'd be interested to get the panel's views on um, your predictions for the post 1981 cohort, and I think Lee started to touch on it at the end, and your prediction of that. And do you think we'll ever see a situation whereby being from an elite background will count against you? <laughs> okay, what about people on that side of the room? We're a bit lucky here in the text chat there. Thank you. Uh, my name is Duncan Exley. I'm a writer on social mobility. Um, given the idea of uh, you know, almost Disraeli and two nations are heading in that direction, and Lee Elliott Majors raising the spectre of a rebellion a la um, uh, Michael Young, um, some people have suggested that the rebellion's already in play and that, for instance, the, the Brexit vote being very correlated with areas that were going down in the world is an uh, instance of that. I wondered if the panel thought that outside the elite, the UK is perceiving and reacting to dis what they might see as distant values and fortunes of the elite, and whether this week's Social Mobility Commission report sheds anything on that. Okay, who, who would like to reply? Um, yeah. So uh, I'd like to take on um, the point about uh, people who, that not everyone necessarily wants to be socially mobile or people shouldn't be stigmatised for being outwardly socially mobile. And I completely agree about that. And I think um, one way to think about this is that no matter how important promoting upward mobility is, it has to be, held in, it has to be kept in mind, A, that not everyone might want to do that and no, not everyone should be blamed for doing that. Uh, and also the downward social mobility is also also ought to be completely and totally acceptable. And that's, of course, never mentioned in conversations about social mobility. Um, and uh, I think another point to make in this context is that if we stigmatise and blame and shame people who aren't upwardly mobile, um, that's probably actually very counterproductive for increasing social mobility. Um, if you think about uh, stigmatising the children children who are born... If you, if you think about stigmatising children who are born in low-income households... Um, then what you're going to do is make it harder for them to be mobile in future. So I think it's potentially counterproductive. Um, I'd also like to take a point on the future cohorts, the prediction for future cohorts. And I suppose we didn't get loads into, because the data doesn't necessarily allow it, into the mechanisms driving some of these patterns that we saw. Um, but if, as I suspect, one of the big mechanisms that may, means that it's difficult to be socially mobile and move to London is about housing wealth, then... Uh, 
house prices are in London are only further outstripping incomes. Um, so it seems plausible that if that's if that variable is the driver, then future cohorts would look quite similar to the ones that uh, we looked at. If I could just add to that, you know, social mobility <laughs> is about is really about your background not determining your choice, and I, I think that gets lost in the debate sometimes. Because uh, I've got many friends uh, who are would be classified as downly mobile in some ways, but are leading very happy lives. Have decided I don't want that. You know, so, so I do think we have to be careful so, and, and I do understand that sometimes the implication of all this is that we all have to, you know, we're not successful and I, and I, I am not certainly not advocating that. It would, it, my, my view is that background shouldn't determine whether or not you make that choice. The problem for many people from less privileged background because they don't have the choice, that's the point. But I kind of see that argument but I, I think beneath that there is a bit more of a nuance in, in the debates. <coughs> Yeah, I just want to add that um, Dr. Lisa McKenzie has done really interesting work on that, uh, on that argument, um, which I wanted to highlight. And then another thing that comes to mind that I think would be very, very important to consider is the paucity of research in terms of wealth mobility um, and the importance of wealth for um, upper mobility and the ability to move to London. Um, uh, you know, related to our research findings. And I think um, a lot of the trappings um, of wealth um, uh, or the prestigious, prestige that's come, that comes along with um, uh, wealth might be associated uh, or justified with a meritocratic um, narrative or discourse. However, um, the wealth behind is unseen and often also unseen in social science research because we don't have the data. So in the census, um, we know someone's occupation, but we don't know the income or wealth. Um, so yeah, definitely need to talk more data on that. Just, uh, I'll just, um, I mean, I think the question, Donna's question about social mobility, I feel like almost should be like a prerequisite question at any event about social mobility. And it's just it really important to rehearse the, the arguments around it, because you're right, I think there's, um, the discourse can, can easily veer into dangerous territory when it um, has that into it and as someone who sits on the Social Mobility Commission um, it's something that uh, I think is you know a real a real concern and is part of the politicization of, of social mobility um, personally you know just to say I think um, Dan mentioned it but we've just re uh, soon to re release a, a fairly lengthy report about downward mobility and you know which is going to be fascinating in of itself but part of in a way is almost a symbolic move to say as a social mobility commission this is absolutely part and parcel of what we should be doing and looking at and thinking about um, as well as the kind of emphasis on, on upward social mobility. I just wanted very quickly to pick up on that provocation about is would an elite background ever work against you? So in, in, in the field work that we were doing, one of the key mechanisms for why elite background um, seems to really um, aid career progression in elite occupations was about, we were sort of talking about this idea of behavioural codes that tend to dominate in, in elite occupations and how those behavioural codes um, advantage those from elite backgrounds, partly because of the history of those professions and how people in those professions um, have over time been able to kind of embed as kind of taken for granted um, their own ideas about the right way to be in the workplace um, and you know that's that's often there in these kind of bywords for fit that are actually really powerful um, in governing who's seen as um, as being as being appropriate to promote 
Um, I could imagine that that would work um, um, similarly powerfully in the other direction. If you were from an elite background and you were to go into a working class occupation, there would also be behavioural codes and those would reflect the culture of work and the history of the culture of work um, that would work against people from elite backgrounds. So I, I sort of, I, I, think it, I think it could do, but I think it's, you know, it's, it's partly why it's so important to understand the composition of these elite occupations um, and who's dominating the culture and how that acts to, um, to sort of advantage some in sort of taking for granted ways. Just to add to that, you know, I, I think the financial elites already are deeply unpopular in many places. I actually think it's, it's interesting, Sam's work, because I actually think the creative elites get off scot-free. I, I actually think, you know, because it's kind of cool to be in those industries, and yet I feel the same way about those elites. I feel they feel quite closed, but, I, but in the popular sort of discussions, I find that they're, they're almost, you know, if you're... A, big film director, it's, it's just you're not, it's not part of the same, but certainly I would argue financialists have already found that they are deeply unpopular, but again it's which elites are you talking about? Okay, um, yes, and then glass of Oh sorry, just a response to Duncan over there, yeah, in, in oh, terms sorry, of, yeah. um, you know, Listen, I think we've spoken about this before. I would, I'll probably agree with you a lot on this. I think there is already a sign. Now, I would argue that Brexit, I mean, everyone's interpreted their own uh, angle on Brexit, but I would argue because of the correlation you saw between those who voted out and coming from however defined less socially mobile parts of the country, that it was a bit of a rejection of the, the metropolitan elite and... and um, a feeling of detachment from our elite. So I would argue the signs are already there. Whether we have outright uh, revolution by 2034, I don't know. It could, it could happen. <laughs> okay, that provocation. Uh, yeah, actually, just taking that point, building on it, because there has been much debate in the last 10 years, and it was exacerbated by Brexit, about the uh, regions losing out to London. Uh, so, in the view of this report and the multidisciplinary nature of LSC, um, what do you see any potential public policy ideas being able to leverage the findings from this report? One, what would they indicate that uh, government or public servants, public policy might do? Thank you. And um, yes, in the front, towards the front here. That, that. Hello, uh, I'm a former student in the Department of Sociology and I graduated a few months ago, so I actually leave this job hunting process where I apply <laughs> to so many companies. And I pos positively bumped into a, an application for a very big corporation, actually, it was Deloitte, a consulting firm, professional services firm, and they actually asked me. I, um, which, uh, like my parents' occupation, they asked me my father and mother's occupation. And I, th I was so surprised and so happy about it. And do you think is it, uh, could, be, could it be a viable solution and boost social, upward social mobility? Um, yeah, in the back there. Pen in hand. <coughs> Uh, 
Hi, uh, good evening. Um, you mentioned a brief point about the Labour Party and aspirations. Um, I was wondering whether you would mention it further. There seems to be this kind of ideological difference in the Labour Party between those who subscribe to the idea that aspiration isn't a good thing and that the working classes ought to celebrate their positions. And then there is another view that aspiration is only a good thing and that we should reject this fundamentalist, almost Marxist view of, um, of class. So I was just wondering if the Labour Party is to form seats and rewin seats in the next election, does the idea of aspiration need to be reincorporated back into the narrative of the Labour Party? Okay, big questions there. Who's going to kick off? Well, I, I, on the Labour Party, I mean, I'm, this, I didn't want to focus all on this, but I, I, do, I do think, for me, it is a false dichotomy. I, I think, you know, and it comes back to what is social mobility about and, and the, the implication that everyone has to be mobile. I, for me, it's about, you know, you either celebrate where you come from, as long as you've got a decent job, by the way, and you can, and you can pay the rent, et cetera, et cetera. So, so in the debates, in the literature, we talk about absolute social policy, which is basically, are you better off than your parents generate? And that, and that is absolute terms rather than relative. So it really depends how you define aspiration stroke social mobility. But for me, it's about enabling people to have choice, whether they want to stay in that place with that job. And of course, you need to think about lots of policies around this, but also, if they want to, to, to go to London and progress in, in, in those words, then fine. Your background shouldn't prevent you from doing that. So I, I, th I think, I, I know it's, there's two sort of ideas in that, and, and I know politicians don't like complexity. Um, but I, I just, I, listen, I haven't done research on it, but I just felt a lot of communities outside London just felt, well, this, why can't we have the option if we want to do that, you know? At the same time, I do think... Uh, communities outside London are, are fed up with not having jobs in their communities, you know, uh, it's less about elites, that's more about just basic uh, life, I think, so, um, so I think it can be done. Um, yeah, I'll tackle the, um, the Deloitte and then the policy questions, I think there's a sort of a way that they can be brought together, maybe. Um, so yeah, I mean, the uh, part of the engagement that I've been involved in, in in the last couple of years I suppose is trying um, to routinely get companies like Deloitte and other elite firms to start routinely measuring class background in this way and I suppose part of the reason for that is then to connect to I think one of the, the, the tensions in this report which is that you know the findings that we have about people not necessarily having to move to be socially mobile could be weaponized as a way of saying everything's um, fine, there's not an issue with London, elitism, etc. But I think what you would find, certainly what I found when you look at elite firms, um, is that within those higher professional managerial occupations and within those elite firms, um, the opportunities um, and the power is still um, disproportionately based in London and those who are occupying those positions are disproportionately from privileged backgrounds and so to then move to the kind of policy implications I, you know, I was working with Channel 4 um, they were the television broadcaster that was my case study and you know, I don't, it wasn't to do with our research uh, although I think it sort of helped with the narrative of, of our, um, but they you know, obviously made quite a bold move uh, in terms of taking the workforce 
uh, away from central London and to Leeds and to a lesser extent Bristol, it's had an immediate effect in terms of the class composition of their workforce. Um, I think those sorts of policy changes are, are, are kind of quite tangible and realisable for um, organisations where pressure can be put uh, on firms to do that and I think that would have a real important impact in terms of you know seeing that yes you can stay where you're from in order to be socially mobile but that doesn't mean um, taking a sort of penalty in terms of potential uh, career opportunities and then, you know, I think alongside that, it's unlikely that we're ever going to lead, you know, have a situation where London isn't the epicenter um, in various ways. Um, so I think you need to think about, um, you know, levers around around housing in particular, um, but more generally about the ways in which um, you can sort of um, sort of dig into the ways in which the bank of mum and dad is is so powerfully. Um, advantaging people from working class background, uh, from privileged backgrounds. So, you know, a very basic policy lever that's still only patchily being enforced is about unpaid, non-advertised internships. Um, still in lots of, you know, particularly the creative and cultural industries that Lee's talking about, those are routine ways that people get their foot in the door until obviously incredibly powerfully in favour of those uh, who can come to London and afford to spend four weeks uh, um, you know living here mm -hmm. um, yes definitely I think organizations have a key role to play um, in um, fostering uh, social mobility um, I just want to add something in terms of the policy um, solution to this problem and I really think that if we want to have true equality of opportunity we also need to achieve equality of outcome first um, and therefore I think we only can have um, Opportunity chances for everyone if we can achieve a more equal distribution of wealth and income. Um, and here I defer to um, Tony Atkinson's work and uh, his wonderful policy suggestions uh, that he's highlighted in uh, Inequality, What Can Be Done? And also in uh, a paper after Piketty after in the British Journal of Sociology, which is a summary of uh, his solutions. But they include, among others, uh, more progressive um, income taxation, the taxation of wealth, the creation of a citizen's inheritance for everyone when they're 18, and so on and so forth. So I think just because today in my presentation, uh, we focused in, we've zoomed in on um, social mobility into highest socioeconomic classes, I think we shouldn't forget that it also matters how far these classes are away from each other and that they've pulled away economically. Um, yeah, thanks. Just could I just respond to that? Because I think that's, I totally agree. With the problem is, and I know everyone in this room won't like it, the political reality is we don't vote for parties that say they're going to redistribute. You know, I mean, that, that has happened again this election. So I, I think, and that's one of the questions that's sort of floating around the room, isn't it, about Labour? You know, how, how do you come up with policies that get you into power that then you are able to redistribute? And I think that, that's a, just one very quick one to add to policy. I wonder whether we should have social class, however done, as a protected characteristic. Mm. I think there's arguments for and against this, but I do think you know there's been real progress in terms of gender and ethnicity. Still, could be more. But I just wonder whether that's something that uh, I think the Social Mobility Commission has looked at. You know, so so that would be another thing you could look at. Okay, I think we've got time for one more round of questions. What's the hand up at this point? Um, right at the back there. Let's go for our students. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> 
Hi, my name is Angela Yeo. I'm a former journalist and uh, now writer performer making a show about money and our distorted relationship with it. Um, I wanted to ask about elite, uh, for the elites, beyond sort of potentially feeling uncomfortable and insecure about their moral legitimacy or worry about a potential immobility uprising in 10, 15, 20 years. What are some of the arguments you'd make to those elite to, against pulling away and potentially coming back and sharing some of it? Or I, you know, it relates to one of the last points that was made, like what, what interest would I have as an elite person? What, what, what are some of the arguments beyond the discomfort or beyond the potential danger, endangerment to my wealth down the track? What, what are some of the strong arguments we can make for that? I think, I think the other side of the room is being a bit techy. Um, <laughs> yes, okay. In the back, yeah. Hi there. Yeah, my name is John, Jonathan Lee. I'm a journalist as well, actually. Um, I want to ask what could be perhaps a slightly controversial question, which is whether there could be any genetic basis for the formation of elites. And the reason for asking that is that Biobank, <laughs> UK Biobank, has um, recently had a study done which showed that. Um, there was some genetic variation between postcodes and the people living in richer, more upmarket postcodes tended to have a higher level of what might be called genes associated with good health, fitness, intelligence and so on. And that conversely, people living in poorer areas had uh, a rather uh, less desirable collection of gene variants. And separately, there's been some research at Warwick University showing that um, there appears to be a genetic basis for entrepreneurship um, and the implication of that is that there could be, uh, at, to some extent, some kind of genetic basis, uh, perhaps could have created by a sortative mating. Uh, in other words, people who are in the elite selecting each other and reinforcing. Uh, I just wonder whether that's yeah. something you've considered. We've got the people that have to get to that. Um, any, any, uh, anything over here? No? Okay, right. <laughs> yes, um, I think we should finish with a few minutes. We've got too many men now. Thanks very much. Um, there's lots of talk about people moving to London, and I think there's a slight inclination for London to become synonymous with kind of the streets being paved with gold. But London has the highest child poverty in the country, and there are thousands of millions of families living in inner London, very, very close to elites, close to lots of opportunities that somehow aren't actualising that. And I just wanted to have anything to say about social mobility within London. OK, so I think let's have a few minutes left. Let's, let's do a final round through and you can round up any of those questions, anything else you want to say. Um, it's really in reverse order, so I won't leave. you want to go first? Cool. Um, I'll, I'll let maybe Sam take the genetics. The only thing I'd say is that everyone in the room would know that the environment and genes is such a complex area. I, I, I think you reduced it to very simplistic terms, which I would challenge. But anyway, I'll, I'll let Sam deal with that. Um, <laughs> actually, what could elites, how can we appeal to elites? Maybe I'm idealistic, but I do think there is something about giving to other people in this very individualistic society that we live in now. And um, of course, there are lots of philanthropists out there doing giving lots of money to very good causes. Um, I do wonder whether, again, we need a debate 
as community rather than the sort of top-down policy stuff around what we can all do for others. This is sound very optimistic now. So in London, you know, there's lots of people, whether you call these elites, living in big houses with rooms that aren't being used. And then you've got people who do want to come to London to do things like journalism, who are struggling to pay the rent. There are some charities now, I've noticed, that are all actually crowdfunded and are actually bottom-up rather than top-down, where you're connecting people that do are you know, able to let out their room for a very low cost to people who want to come in. And I, and I actually quite like that sort of community-based feel to it. So I wonder whether we can appeal more to people broadly considered as, as elites. Okay, Sam, do you have the um, I mean, I, I think Lee sort of alluded to it. I mean, the, this question about genetics uh, and social mobility, I mean, it comes up, you know, time and time again um, but it's fraught for just so many uh, complex reasons. But I mean, just to, just just to, I mean, just one rebuttal, uh, actually based on a paper that was published this week in the British Journal of Sociology, which doesn't use genetics, but uses a sort of, um, you know, in some ways you might say a proxy in terms of very uh, very sort of early uh, cognitive ability type test scores and, and looks at um, and looks at how that links to social mobility and finds that actually um, you know you know there's 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 it's it's actually not very um, useful uh, in terms of understanding people's mobility trajectories so I mean in that vein I think you know there's just a lot of evidence that that kind of points against those sorts of explanations uh, not in any way you know saying that we should never ever touch this as an area but um, it seems to me anyway in my reading of, of the literature that um, there's not there's not a sort of credible body um, to start bringing that into sort of anyway sociological uh, debates in a very serious way um, in terms of how you how do you how do you sell this to elites um, I don't know. I mean, I've had some interesting interactions, you know, uh, uh, um, presenting work on this type of stuff to boardrooms. And I mean, <clears throat> I think in, in a way, the thing that I've learnt is, um, I mean, a couple of things. And I don't know if this is necessarily normatively how we should do it. But in terms of things that have landed, from, from my point of view, um, there is a, uh, you know, as Katerina mentioned, you know, uh, um, people believe very strongly in meritocracy um, and they want to believe that their fortune is, is a legitimate fortune as Max Weber famously wrote I think you see that very strongly among elites and where then you can use social science research to dislodge that firmly held belief that things are fair um, I think you start to um, sort of undermine their sense of, of, of self and the legitimacy of their position in ways that um, perhaps um, wins them over and certainly in, in the case of the work we were doing that often sadly means a language that they understand and respect which is often high level quantitative data uh, in this case it was around the class pay gap that's able to strip away a lot of the meritocratic things that they think might explain uh, uh, why they would be earning more um, so I think perhaps an appeal uh, to fairness and a demonstration that that the meritocracy they firmly believe in is a bit of a myth, can be a powerful way in. Dan, do you want to Yeah, so again on the, the, the genetics question, um, I think 
a lot of people find the idea... I think a lot of people tend to think that once you've identified a correlation between some genes and a socioeconomic outcome, that that must mean that it's a genetic cause. And I think there's very little reason for actually thinking that's the case. There's a very high chance that these correlations are spurious. Um, uh, I think every few years, scientists claim to have identified a gene that predicts homosexuality or something similar. And the predictive power of them of these genes are incredibly bad, even if even if they're causal. So, I, I, yeah, I don't think that's... I don't think it's a particularly helpful road to go down when there are so many much closer to ho- closer and easier to observe factors um, for understanding different differences in social mobility. Um, on the point about how you could convince elites uh, to support greater social mobility, I think maybe there's an analogy to be drawn with how you can support, how you might convince elites to support lower inequality. So it's really well known that countries that are more economically unequal are also more violent. They have higher murder rates. Um, and if you think about that, you think that elites are actually maybe in some ways doing themselves a disservice. If you're an elite in a, in a very violent country, you have to spend loads of money on security and gated compounds and armed guards and so on. And maybe you might prefer to be a bit less rich but also be able to walk the streets at night. Um, and I think you can make a similar argument with respect to social mobility. Like maybe you'd prefer a society uh, where people can, where, where, pe- where people's kind of merit, whatever that means... Um, or opportunities are can be much more freely expressed, and people don't have to work incredibly hard having to, I don't know, for example, endow a building at a college to get their children into a, an elite university or something. You know, they might prefer, if they thought about it, to not actually have to do, engage in those kind of activities. Um, yeah, that's that's how I think about this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I agree with that, and I'd also like to add that we shouldn't forget that there's a significant minority among elites who do recognise that um, background is important for career success um, and who would like to see a more equal society. society. So, for example, uh, with the 30 people I spoke to um, for my PhD, um, uh, I found that a significant minority um, did not subscribe to the meritocratic view and these are the people that we should engage with. Um, one other um, idea that has come out recently in research is um, Richard Sherman has done work with uh, progressive uh, rich people in the US and um, um, she's arguing that the first step is to identify as rich for progressive cause. So firstly acknowledging what someone's or one's advantage um, for elites might be an important first step um, to think about um, think about um, Creating more, uh, creating a more equal society, and then uh, the question about um, child mobility, uh, child poverty, and social mobility in London. Um, so obviously, we've only looked at um, social mobility into higher managerial professional occupations. So we haven't looked at poverty. Um, however, um, Sam and Professor Lindsay McMillan have written a paper on. Um, variations in social mobility um, across different areas in the UK, and they found that even that in London, um, even though that in, even though social mobility rates for um, UK nationals are really high, for international migrants, um, mobility rates are not actually low. Um, and so this this is a counterintuitive finding, which um, may help to speak to your question. Okay, thank you, everybody. That's the end of the evening. Thank-